is White Sox Weekly, your all-access pass to everything White Sox. That baby will go! Lance Lynn with an absolute gem. Deep hooray! It is gone! It's a no-hitter! Carlos Rodon! What a performance! Now here's your host, Connor McKnight. It has been too long. White Sox fans, I'm Connor. This is White Sox Weekly. We've got you for two hours this afternoon as we get to the pregame show at 5.30. And the first pitch for the White Sox and Tigers this evening at 6.10 here at Guaranteed Rate Field. Welcome in, one and all. Got a fun, packed show for you this afternoon. Well, most of it's going to be fun. Unfortunately, there are some you know, national stories in baseball that concern performance-enhancing drug suspensions that are less than fun to have to talk about, but we'll get to that, too. 312-332-3776. That's the phone number. You want to hop in, talk a little White Sox with us here, a lot of uh, Major League Baseball storylines. We're here for you all afternoon long, up until 530-312-332-3776. That's the number. You can also join us as the White Sox take on the Astros Monday, August 15th through the 18th. we got a packed week with Southside Mondays presented by United Police and Fire Night on Wednesday and the Summer T-Shirt Series presented by Barilla, DJ's favorite, on Thursday. The playoff race is heating up, and you do not want to miss this matchup to purchase tickets. Visit WhiteSox.com. That's what's coming, and we'll let you know what's coming up on the show as well. Got a bit of a different start for you this afternoon. It's a good one, too. Ethan Katz, White Sox pitching coach, is our first guest of the day, and he is ready to come out of the bullpen here on the show. Ethan, appreciate you coming on, and I apologize for that uh, the horrible baseball pun to start things off. But either way, how are you, my my friend? I'm good. I'm good. I'm uh, getting ready for today's game, but all's good. Good. I want to start with uh, the man of the hour last night. Michael Kopech was absolutely terrific. Yesterday, taking six no-hit innings and being strong throughout, three walks, 11 strikeouts. And I thought what struck me most is after the game, he said he didn't think it was necessarily going to be a good one for him. Did you sense that he felt that coming out? How did you guys talk about it before he began his evening? Um, I mean, there's there's been a lot. I mean, what people don't know what goes on behind the scenes, you know. But he he, he prepared himself a lot to get ready for that game. Um, and, you know, I think going into any game, you're very optimistic. His bullpen session before the game was, was okay. Um, he wasn't too happy about it, but just encouraging him to let him know that's just a place to get loose. And, you know, it was a, it was a great outing for him. So, you know, you never know going into each game. I've seen guys look really good and, and think that they're their top of the game and they don't get through three innings. So um, you never know, um, but once again, the heat of the moment, it's, and it's go time. You know, you never know what's going to happen. You guys got a win last night, so obviously it's a celebration all around. I, I think, though, it was really interesting to hear Tony La Russa talk last night after the game about how badly Michael wanted to come back out for that seventh inning. I think, you know, from an outsider's perspective, that's a really cool place to be because Michael gets to celebrate an, uh, a success there, and you guys get to celebrate a success while also wanting just a little bit more next time around. Is that kind of how you see it? Is that something he may build on? Yeah, I mean, for sure. I mean, the biggest thing right now with him is is always, you know, how much, what's his workload? How much should he do? 
And, you know, going into this game yesterday, we were very aware that the one before was three-plus innings, 74 pitches. So you don't want to push them too much. You can't just go from three to nine, um, even though everybody wants that. That's not what's in best interest for Michael. Um, so it's, it's just kind of monitoring day-to-day um, how he's doing, where he's at. And, you know, going into it, we kind of had penciled in five and 90 and, you know, giving him an extra inning, but that's great. He he wanted to do more. I think everybody in the heat of the moment when they're throwing that well wants to keep going, but we have to do what's right for the player. Talking with White Sox pitching coach Ethan Katz here on White Sox Weekly. I'm Connor McKnight. I noticed, Ethan, in the second inning after Michael had gotten Harold Castro and Miguel Cabrera swinging on strikeouts, fastball and slider, each of them, he had Jamer Candelario on a 1-2 count and threw a low changeup that looked to me like he was trying to get some swing and miss on a change. And that's not something that's often in Michael's repertoire in that particular count. Can you talk to me about what the design of that pitch was like, what calling that one was like, how aggressive you want to be, and Michael wants to be with that changeup going forward? Where does that fit in to the rest of his stuff? Uh, it's something that he's always been working on. Um... You know, and that was the one thing, that was the one highlight going in um, into the game, leaving the bullpen yesterday, was how good the changeup was. Um, and it was something that, you know, we talked about with the Az, like, hey, let's see where it's at. Let's, you know, maybe lean on this pitch maybe a little bit more, um, depending on how, you know, he takes it out. And the first one he threw was good. So we kind of rode that wave a little bit. And it's something that he is going to continue to um, work on. We just don't want to put himself in bad counts. And, and also tried to develop that pitch at the same time. You know, the, the pitching for the White Sox over the last month, month and a half, really, really the entire season has been the steady for the ball club. And I want to get to the brightest point, perhaps, in Dylan Cease in a bit. But I, I've been talking up Jimmy Lambert out of the bullpen for a bit now because I think the breaking stuff plays at such a fun level when he's able to throw it a little bit harder What's it been like working with Jimmy as he's made that transition to kind of multi-inning reliever? You know, I know his last outing wasn't uh, wasn't great, but it had been 12 consecutive scoreless outings for Lambert out of the bullpen. He's a lot of fun to watch. What has the biggest change been in your mind? Uh, I think it's just understanding what he does. Um, there's a, he, he's able to – he has four-plus pitches that he's able to mix and match at any given point. So it doesn't matter the handedness that's up there, right or lefty. He has weapons to combat both. So, you know, the one thing with his last outing, he kind of got away from what he had been doing really well. Um, He was leaning on the fastball a little bit too much. Um, But when he's able to kind of mix and match and and keep hitters guessing, it it shows how good his weapons are and how tough it is he can be on hitters. And, you know, I think that's something that he's really found um, a little bit of a niche in the bullpen being able to do that. Um, you know, in the beginning, it was him trying to strike every hitter out or get swings and misses and then kind of getting into bad counts and understanding that you can't strike somebody out in OO um, and getting him to really trust his stuff in the zone a little bit earlier. And then when you get to the proper count, go ahead and go for it. Um, but just understanding how to pitch by pitch, count to count, how do we want to utilize your stuff, what is our approach, um, what he's really starting to grasp really well. He's been if I'm if I'm noticing it correctly, Ethan, he's been able to attack guys up with his breaking stuff probably more often than other guys out of the bullpen. And I'm wondering if that's a function of Jimmy Lambert's stuff 
or of the hitters you guys are trying to assign him to go face or, or maybe a combination of column A, column B? Yeah, I mean, I think it's it's just, it's, I think that is just a, a tribute to him actually trusting his stuff in his zone a little bit more. Mm. And and that's something that we really have pushed on him, that we want to be able to use our best weapons in the zone as much as possible and get in count leverage. And when that does happen, that just means he's trusting his stuff. Um, when it's uncompetitive out of the zone, that means he's trying to do too much. Um, and we really want to try to uh, really – can like slow him down and slow the game down and understand like this is how we want to approach this pitch and when we get the stuff in the zone um it, it's it's made you know outings for him very easy last year in spring training yes Monty Grandal told everybody who would listen that Dylan Cease has the kind of stuff and demeanor uh and ability that would let him compete for a Cy Young award and a lot of people you know kind of said oh really is that really really uh, and, and Dylan has proven him right. He's proven everybody right. What has it been like uh, to watch that kind of prediction come into play here? I mean, he's he's chasing down the potential for winning that award as much as anybody else in the American League. Yeah, I mean, it's a it's a pleasure to watch every five days. Um, he has he has the stuff. He has the ability. He has the mindset, and he's really he has grown. And I, I've said this for a very long time. You know, I, I still see a lot of room for improvement. Um, and that's crazy because you're looking at a guy who's really thrown the ball well um, throughout the whole year and, and has put himself on the map with everybody. And, and I still see um, glimpses of him that we still want to grow and get better. So it, it's really exciting. He works extremely hard. And, you know, he's been, he's been our horse this year. Where you know, I, I read a lot uh, about Dylan's uh, quest to change the depth on that slider, and I'm wondering where and how he clued you in on what he was trying to do with that pitch grip change, um, and, and exactly kind of what those steps were to to arriving at that. It sounded like it was just a you know one this one weird trick will help your slider kind of thing that he just shifted a little bit and there it was. But there there has to be a little bit more to how he arrived there, no? Um, well, I mean, the slider has always been really good, but we were looking at it um, from an unknown lens in the way of, you know, he was throwing it a little bit harder, and then it was like, hey, Dylan, like, the movement is um, a little less, but you are throwing a little bit harder, and then we, like, kind of talked about it, broke it down, and went into the bullpen and kind of talked about it a little bit more, and then he started throwing it, he's like, okay, well, you know, I feel if I am able to go up a little bit harder, a little bit higher, I could throw a little bit harder. Um, and it was kind of, you know, but Dylan, your slider is already really good. Um, and we kind of just toyed around with it. And it was like, you know, it, it looks really good. The numbers say that it's really good. Um, let's see how hitters react. And, you know, it's 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 been working. So um, it was just kind of a little bit of an experiment just, just seeing um, – you know, the results of where his slider is at, kind of seeing a little bit uh, different movement patterns and kind of breaking it down further and him kind of playing around, and boom, this is where we're at. Last time out, Lance Lynn went six innings, gave up two home runs, two two-run shots, and the rest of his outing was, from my perspective, pretty good. Lance kind of beat himself up a little bit in the post game uh, about giving up those two home runs. Uh, it was a loss for you guys, so Lance does take those you know, pretty hard. Where is he at in the whole process? How are things shaping around for him? The the cutter and the velo look, you know, pretty much there. 
Is it a matter of shaping the rest of the things? Yeah, I mean, I think Lance is in a much better spot than he was, you know, three outings ago. Um, just from getting back, like, the the injury he had and, and going through what he went through, uh, and it's, it's similar to, to Michael, not the same injury, but, you know, the, the back leg and how much that impacts everything and how they're able to get off the mound and drive and stuff like that is, you know, you're seeing, starting to see the velo tick up. He's starting to get back to normal, if that's what you want to call it. Um, but the last three outings have been a great, great sign. Um, there were some signs with, like, his pitch movement that were a little bit off that we were trying to rectify and, and delivery stuff, trying to get back in, in line to what he was doing last year. But, you know, there's some physical limitations when, when a guy's coming back from uh, the injury he was coming with. And, and, and now he's in, a, he's in a much better spot. He's feeling better. We're going um, into more of getting his pitches in line where they were, and, and this velo is starting to trend where it normally is. Wanted to get, uh, if I could, an update on two guys who have been uh, dealing with or, or seemingly getting over injuries here. What's the latest on Joe Kelly? How's he feeling? And I believe Reynaldo Lopez has thrown twice out of the bullpen since coming off the injury list. All good, ready to roll. The stuff looks great. Um, Joe, Joe's good. Um, he's he will uh, he'll probably be down one more day um, and then available. Just trying to get uh, some stuff um, lined up for him. But he, he's in a good spot. The arm is good. That's that's the most important thing. And. Yeah. And but he's good. Um, we had just a little scare the other day, but um, everything checks out good, and it's just kind of getting him back in line. Um, Lobie's great; like he's he's the ball's coming out great, and he's in a great spot. And we're really glad to have him back. Lucas starts today for you guys against the team that uh, you know it's a divisional team and its opponent. You know he knows him well. There's a couple of new hitters in there though, some younger players. Uh, what will be kind of the focus? For Lucas, coming off that start where he was uh, five innings, one run against the Rangers, and another pretty good one, too, against the Royals, five innings, two runs in that last ball game, two starts ago, I should say. Um, I just control counts, the leadoff hitter. I and mean, that's, that's you know, when we've had our battles with the longer innings, it started with the leadoff hitter. So um, we really, really want to try to lock that guy down um, to control the inning a little bit more and, and go from there. So that's going to be our focus today. and. And, you know, hopefully he's getting every leadoff guy and every inning goes his way. Ethan, appreciate the time so much. Always a pleasure talking. Good luck tonight. Thank you. Appreciate it. You got it. Ethan Katz, White Sox pitching coach, our first guest of the day here on White Sox Weekly. We'll let you know what we're up to the rest of the show in just a little bit. We're going to step aside for a break. Sarah Langs of the MLB Network is going to join us right around 5 o'clock. Really want you to hear the postgame interview from last night. Uh, Michael Kopech, Jason Minetti, Steve Stone all had a little chat after the game. It was really, really interesting stuff from the three of them after a good start from Michael Kopech. We will obviously... Talk about the injury to Luis Robert last night and a whole bunch more here on White Sox Weekly. 312-332-3776. That's the number. You want to talk a little White Sox? You want to talk a little baseball? Give us a ring, and we got you for the next two hours. We'll hang out. I'm Connor McKnight. This is the ESPN 1000 Hard Rock Casino White Sox Network. Greeny, 10 to noon, weekdays on ESPN 1000. Welcome back to White Sox Weekly here on the ESPN 1000 Hard Rock Casino White Sox Network. I'm Connor McKnight. Sox fans slide into these summer steals 
with tickets starting at just $5 for select upper level and $15 for select lower level seats for the upcoming Houston Astros series. Don't miss this deal. For tickets, visit whitesocks.com slash steals. 312-332-3776. That's the phone number. Just got done with our first conversation of the day. Ethan Katz, White Sox pitching coach, joined us to talk a little bit about the state of the White Sox pitching staff. Because, you know, why else would you? Of course, that's what we talked about. I, I thought it was some really interesting stuff about Michael Kopech last night and, of course, about Dylan Cease. Uh, later on in the show... We're going to talk about Dylan's quest to win the American League Cy Young Award. Uh, it's an uphill battle, and that's not anything that's uh, Dylan's fault, really. I mean, I guess you could look at his high walk total and say, well, that's why he won't win it. But, yeah, listen, there's a lot of baseball left to go, a bunch of starts left. That Justin Verlander fella is pitching a pretty good season. He also has the, the weight and the heft of having won the award before, so there's narrative behind him, there's resurgence, everybody loves the old dog, you know, that kind of thing. But we'll see if Dylan can maybe wrest that Cy Young award away from the apparently waiting hands of Justin Verlander. Shane McClanahan's got a good reason to get his name in the mix, although he got uh, he got shelled, I want to say, three starts ago, something like that. Maybe it was two. Uh, even still... You know, a Cy Young Award winner is going to get uh, one or two handed to him across the course of his season. Want to want to talk more about Michael Kopech last night before we get too far down the road. We're going to talk about Luis Robert last night. We're going to talk about the lineup for today against the Tigers and really the state of the White Sox as well. But you know, Michael's effort last night, that start was was really impressive to me. He went six innings, uh, 85 pitches in total, three walks, 11 strikeouts. And I, I thought what was most impressive was the fact that he told Jason and Steve on the television side of things after the game that he did not expect it to be all that great a start, given the way his bullpen session went. I'm going to play that postgame interview in just a minute, but there were a couple of things I noticed from Kopech and have been kind of watching for uh, over his last... Well, to be quite frank with you, uh, since he came out after two-thirds of an inning in a game against the Texas Rangers here at Guaranteed Rate Field, I, I happened to be on the call with Darren Jackson at the time when that game was going on, and you know, man, you could just see it. You could feel it. You, it was just yet another potential injury for the White Sox that was going to make this division uh, more difficult. And it is. it has been difficult up to this point, no doubt about it. The White Sox are three and a half games back of the Cleveland Guardians as we enter play today. Even still, you know, losing, losing a member of the rotation would have been a huge blow. Uh, but Kopech has, at, at the very least, and I mean that quite literally, at the very least given his team a chance to win in just about every start he has made since then. But what those starts have looked like in terms of velocity and command in some regards has been almost all over the place. And what's been really cool for Copa, at least from, from my perspective, is the way his fastball moves at any velocity makes it really difficult to barrel up. I mean, the guy rolled up four double plays in a game against the Colorado Rockies. He went five and a third, did not give up a run in Denver, for crying out loud, and he walked three and gave up six hits. That's nine base runners over five and a third innings, 16 outs. I think I'm doing it right five times. Yeah, 16 outs. That's a lot of base runners in 16 outs, especially in Denver, and to strand them all is pretty impressive. And before you say, well, you know, so that's Babbitt luck, yeah, that, that's true, 
But if you look at the the hard hit rates, the exit velocities that Kopech was giving up in that start, and the launch angles, a lot of it on the ground, it's difficult to park one, even in Denver, if it's a ground ball. So that all kind of checks out to a certain degree. You mix that in with the strikeout stuff he had last night, set a new career high in strikeouts at 11, and I don't know, it's just... It's just Kopech's always been a really interesting White Sox to me. Since he got called up uh, to the big leagues, I was actually here for that start, despite not being uh, in this job at the time, because that's the kind of anticipation that was around Kopech from the very get-go. And, you know, it's, it's kind of been a, a push and pull. Will they, won't they? You know, is he starting a playoff game if the White Sox get to the playoffs? Is he not starting a playoff game if the White Sox get to the playoffs? Can you use him out of the bullpen because he's been there before? You know, all these parts of the conversation exist because this is his first full year uh, in the rotation. But I, I, I think taking it from a start-to-start, start, you know, breaking it down from a start-to-start start situation um, is also kind of interesting because the learning experience is there, because the little bit of... You know, two steps forward, half a step back, three steps forward, kind of, that all exists. And I think that's a lot of fun to watch. Uh, Kopech last night coming out after six innings and 85 pitches was, you know, you heard Ethan, if you didn't hear Ethan Katz earlier, go and download the ESPN Chicago app. All of our White Sox weekly shows are downloadable for your leisure, you know, whether it's me or Tyler Aki who do, or Jeff Meller, who does an amazing job filling in on White Sox Weekly when I'm not around. Uh, they are great shows, and we work real hard to get you the best interviews we can from this White Sox club, all thanks to Eric Ostrowski as well. Uh, it's, it was really good with Ethan today. Um, all that to say, the expectation for Michael since his last start was three and a third innings, uh, not the last start, but the one before last night, three and a third innings and 74 pitches was like five and 90. So to get six innings, 85, check the box of what the pregame was. And Ethan was also very clear to note that, like, that's what we go into pregame. That is not, it's not preordained what a guy is going to throw in any given game. He wanted to come back out for seven. And you know, I, on the postgame last night, I, I kind of said, yeah, it would have been nice to see Michael come back out, start that seventh inning, see how far he can go. On the other hand, there is no way he's, you know, throwing that no-hitter on pace to throw 127 pitches through nine innings, that that's borderline criminal, you know, for any starter in this game, much less a guy who's making his first turn through the rotation. But one more inning or a couple more batters could have been interesting. On the other other hand, the White Sox had Reynaldo Lopez, Kendall Graveman, and Liam Hendricks all fresh, hadn't pitched in two days uh, for two of them. And for Hendricks, I think it was, oh no, two games for, for all three of those guys. Lopez, Graveman, and Hendricks all worked in the 3-2 win over the Royals back on the ninth. That was the second game of the doubleheader, the only game they won in Kansas City. So you've got your A-team ready to roll out of the van and, and take down whatever problem. I forget how the A-team open goes, uh, but it was right there for you to go ahead and play Lopez, Graveman, Hendricks, one inning apiece, all of them scoreless, and the White Sox get a shutout win over the Tigers 2 to nothing. Pitching-wise, things have been just fine. Thank you very much for the Chicago White Sox. Offensively, it has not been the case. They have been scratching and clawing for every single run they can find over the last two, three weeks. And really, really over the whole season, it's been the source of frustration for this club. And it has been the reason, I think more so than anything else, that the White Sox are 57 and 56, three and a half games out of the AL Central lead, two and a half games out of the final wild card spot here 
as we sit on the 13th of August. We're going to dig into the source of some of that offensive frustration. We're going to talk about Luis Robert and his situation when we come back. Uh, We've got one more thing planned for you here on White Sox Weekly later this afternoon, and I'll tell you what that is in just 10 seconds as we pause it here real quickly for station identification. From the old National Bank studio on State Street, this is ESPN 1000, a good karma brand's radio station. On WMVP, WSAG HD2, Chicago. So that one other thing we have planned for you here on White Sox Weekly is a conversation with MLB Network's Sarah Langs. I, she is an absolutely fantastic baseball researcher. Love talking baseball with her. She's coming up at 5 o'clock. When we come back, I want to play for you the post-game interview with Michael Kopech, Jason Benetti, and Steve Stone. It was a good one, and it's always great when a guy comes out of a ball game that successful and gives you the kind of candid breakdown of what it was to get there and what it was to fight through. That's right, what it was to fight through what Kopech had to fight through at the start of that game. So we'll play that for you when we come back. It's White Sox Weekly here on the ESPN 1000 Hard Rock Casino White Sox Network. Here on Twitch, follow ESPN 1000 Chicago. Welcome back. This is White Sox Weekly here on the ESPN 1000 Hard Rock Casino, White Sox Network. White Sox fans, join us for Southside Mondays presented by United Airlines. That is going to be coming up on, well, Monday, of course. I was going to say August 1st because that's what the read said, but that Monday has passed. The next Monday, hold on, I've got, a, I've got like nine calendars up here in the booth and I can't find any one of them. All right, found one. The next Monday coming up, today's the 13th, which means the next Monday, you're probably screaming at me in the car going, you idiot. And, you know, and I am. The next Monday is the 15th against the Houston Astros. So join us on August 15th for the next Southside Monday. Watch the White Sox. They're going to rep the Southside jerseys and honor small businesses making an impact here on the Southside. Each Southside Monday ticket includes up to $20 in concession credit added to your mobile ticket. To purchase, visit WhiteSox.com. Don't look at me like that, Eric. Don't look at me. I, I know. I'm an idiot and can't read a schedule even when I do find it. Hi, I'm Connor, and I shouldn't be allowed to read schedules on the air, apparently. Anyway, White Sox and Tigers tonight. Hey, I've got the lineup for the White Sox and the Tigers, for that matter. Here's that for you. A.J. Pollock is leading off. He's in center field. Yoan Moncada is going to bat two, play third base tonight. Eloy Jimenez is in left field. Jose Abreu is at first, batting four. Yosmani Grandal is catching. Andrew Vaughn is the DH tonight. They're batting five and six. Seven, eight, and nine for the White Sox are Gavin Sheets in right field. Larry Garcia at shortstop. And Josh Harrison at second base. No Luis Robert in that lineup, of course. He left last night's game with a sprained left wrist. He was sliding into second base on a steal attempt. Jonathan Scope had the bag blocked with his left leg. The oven-mitted left hand of Luis Robert collided with that leg, folded up in none-too-fun fashion, uh, and it cost him the rest of the game. Hopefully not much more time. I'm going to wait to have that particular discussion with you and would love to hear your thoughts too, 312-332-3776. I'm going to wait to have that discussion with you for a little bit just to see um, if a little bit down the road during the show here we get the latest from the White Sox about Luis Robert. We may and we may not. You know, it's we're not exactly sure exactly what point that conversation is going to happen with Tony La Russa and White Sox beat reporters. We will be here doing the show, of course, when that does happen. But we'll bring it to you. I did want to bring you last night the post game interview 
with White Sox starter Michael Kopech, who had six no-hit innings against the Tigers, three walks and 11 strikeouts. He was brilliant. He uh, did not come back out for the seventh, but wanted to. But I think what you'll hear, and we appreciate the fine folks at NBC Sports Chicago uh, for the interview and for Jason and Steve and their part in it, and Michael's too, for that matter. It, 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 was, it starts with them talking about how rough a bullpen session that Kopech had had and how, you know, I, I wouldn't say anxious, but, you know, a little, little, little irpy he felt about coming off to the mound after having such a bad bullpen session. Here it is, the postgame interview with Michael Kopech from uh, Jason Benetti and Steve Stone. We are joined by Michael Kopech downstairs. Uh, when did you know tonight was going to be like it was? Um, to be honest, I thought tonight was going to be rough. Why? <laughs> I, uh, I walked a couple guys early. I was spraying the ball a little bit. Uh, towards the end, there, towards the end of the, the second inning there, I, I think the second inning was going to strike out the side. Um, I, I started to feel like I had control of the strike zone again. Um, and then I kind of got my feet under me. But before that, I, I, I didn't really have the command that I wanted coming into today. Um, but, you know, everything worked out, and I ended up having a really good outing. I'm, I'm very grateful for it. You had a great deal of depth on your slider tonight. It was as good a slider as you've had all year. Have you been working on that, shaping that pitch with Ethan in the bullpen? Um, we've been worried or working more on uh, just trying to make it harder and harder. Um, and so it's it's gotten the velo back up, and I, I felt good with it. And I think the more comfortable I've gotten throwing it hard, I've been able to kind of create the shape. So uh, it's definitely been a working process all year, but um, tonight it felt better than it has in a long time. How about throwing a straight change in the first inning? Where'd that one come hey, from? Yeah, I don't know. <laughs> <laughs> I think I threw more change-ups in tonight's game than I have all season. But, uh, no, it felt good for you know for a few there and then I, I started kind of dragging behind and I let a couple sail but um, just you know being able to have a fourth pitch to mix in I think uh, played a lot in tonight's game and throwing some hitters off so uh, definitely credit to Yaz for how he called the game and you know, I'm grateful that I was able to do it at the Hey, before we let you go, you signaled one as you were coming off the field what was the conversation like in, in uh, between? But before I went out they told me that that was going to be my last inning and uh I was, I was trying to <laughs> bargain for another one before I got to the dugout, and I thought I might have thought I might have convinced Tony, but they they were not on the side of me going back out. So uh, unfortunately, I only went six. But yeah, I was trying to get a seven. What's the deepest you've ever gone in your entire life in a no hitter, or how many have you thrown? Ah. Uh, can't count high school, right? No, and, we can. Okay. Well, <laughs> They're in your memory bank, dude. <laughs> I, I threw three my senior year. Uh, but those are seven-inning games, and, you know, it, it's not professional hitters. Um, although I do remember them. But, but this is the longest I've taken one against professional hitters, I think. Maybe maybe I did the same thing in the minor leagues, but big leagues is where it counts. So this is, this is one to remember for sure. What did it feel like as you knew that that was happening? Um, surreal because, like I said, I didn't think it was going to be a great night for me. And a lot of times, I'm sure you hear guys say that all the time that the nights they don't feel the best are the nights they throw the best. Um, and it was just like that. So I, I was really just trying to, you know, limit damage when I let a guy on and keep us in the game with a chance to win. And ended up, you know, working out in my favor. Well, happy for you. Congratulations, Michael. Well Thank done. You, nice job. Thank you, Steve. Appreciate it, guys. Michael Kopech, ladies and gentlemen. 
Michael Kopech, ladies and gentlemen. Jason Benetti and Steve Stone, ladies and gentlemen. I'm Connor McKnight. You're listening to White Sox Weekly. I, you know, there, there's something I noticed in that post-game presser, the presser, the, the, the interview that I hadn't noticed the first time I listened to it last night, and that's Kopech kind of, you know, Jason asks him, you know, how many no-hitters? How, how far have you taken? And Kopech tries to brush off the fact that he threw three no-hitters in high school, saying that it doesn't matter because they weren't professional hitters. Michael, you were also in high school while you were no-hitting high schoolers. I, I think it does count. But I am going to find, and somebody needs to keep me to this, uh, next time I'm down in the clubhouse, tomorrow if I can find Michael, I do want to ask him, after the third no-hitter in high school, do you celebrate? Do you even, like, is that even a day for you? Is that just, oh, I went to the ballpark, I threw another no-hitter, now let's go to Applebee's for the postgame. Like, is that, like, I don't even know. Like, ah, oh, it's another American Legion no-hitter, and uh, we'll just drive home and everything will be fine. I, I need to find that out. And hope that I will. Um, 312-332-3776. That's the phone number. We've got the pregame show coming up at 530. We're going to have a conversation with Sarah Langs of MLB Network. Talk a lot about Dylan Cease and his quest for the AL Cy Young. Uh, I asked the, the fellas, everybody back in studio, to help me out because I am uh, I'm an old and was really struggling on the whole website search while talking. Uh, and then I should have remembered, all you got to do is go to FanDuel and type in the thing that you want to search for to bet on, and, and it just pops up because FanDuel's great. Uh, the odds for American League Cy Young right now on FanDuel, Justin Verlander is minus 145, so uh, a prohibitive favorite. Well, maybe not prohibitive, but a heavy favorite. Dylan Cease is the next best odds at plus 200. Shane McClanahan is plus 700. He of the Tampa Bay Rays. And then what I find really interesting, and I guess I'll have to look, relook at Shohei Otani's numbers, he's plus 3,500 right now, which, you know, listen, I'm, I'm rooting for Dylan Cease to win the thing as much as anybody else. I, I cover him. It'd be fun to cover a Cy Young Award winner, no doubt. Uh, but Otani doing what he because these awards, you know, we're, we're closer and closer to the point where we're, um, rewarding just production, right? I, I think everybody knows who follows baseball, or maybe you don't if you're you know, a generation younger than I am uh, and a baseball fan like Jake is back at the shop. And that's not a knock, Jake. That's, that's a credit to you, my friend. I love that you're 24. I love that you're 19 and still interested in baseball. I love that you're 15 years old and still interested in baseball. I think that's really important. We need younger fans in this game. Uh, but you may not remember a point in, in baseball's history where gold glove, the gold glove went to a eh, defender, but if he was hitting, then you could win the award because you were a defender and then you were hitting. And then it's like, well, what are we awarding a gold glove for? I don't know what this, this whole thing is about. Um, however, I think we're getting closer and closer to it. When Felix Hernandez won the AL Cy Young yeah, a handful of years ago, I want to say 15 years ago, something like that. And I, I think he was sub 500 with his record, if not just right at 500. I think he was like 11 and 15 or maybe he was 9 and 11. Uh, memory's kind of failing. And as I've mentioned before, Googling while talking is not a skill set of mine. Uh, I think we kind of you know, broke the dam in that regard. I think we got to a point where we were looking at pitching record. Uh, for starters, mattering less and less and less and less and less. And I'm not, dis- I'm not saying that it's completely meaningless anymore, especially when you look back in history and take a look at guys like um, you know, Bob Gibson and Denny McLean, who was the last guy to win 31 in 1968. Those pitching wins matter a hell of a lot more than they do now because those guys were asked to go longer and longer in games. Tony LaRusso mentioned it in the postgame last night in regards to Kopech. 
that he wants to change the way the win is awarded. Uh, Antonio didn't have a, a specific for how it should be changed, but, you know, Kopech throws six no-hit innings. He comes out in a scoreless game. His offense hadn't done anything for him. And, you know, if he'd have given up one mistake, you know, well, besides that point, he's he's not he can't win the game. He can only get a no decision at that point. And I, I think guys should be rewarded just a little bit more than they are right now for outings like that. I would be completely, and Glenn has talked about this a lot, um, changing who the winning pitcher can be in a given game, I think would be a, a real interesting thing for a lot of different reasons, especially that we don't treat starting pitchers. I shouldn't even say that. We don't ask starting pitchers to do the same things that we used to ask them to do, even when I was in high school, right? I mean, these guys aren't coming out like Burley um, or coming out of there like uh, like Jack McDowell expected to go seven, eight innings, right? It's just this doesn't exist anymore. Uh, but that's not the player's fault. That is the very nature of how this game has changed and how velocity in my opinion, has changed almost everything about what we're watching on the field. So that long screed aside, uh, Dylan Cease, plus 200 to win the American League Cy Young on FanDuel. It's worth uh, taking a look at. And I don't know, you know, if you're interested in that kind of thing, you can go do it. Luis Robert left the game last night with a sprained left wrist. Haven't seen anything yet. Uh, updating Luis Robert's situation. Um, White Sox beat reporters are, I think, down there talking to Tony uh, just a little bit ago or, or had just finished. Um, so we're going to swing it around and see what's new. Obviously, the play itself is worth some conversation. I had some conversation on Twitter last night, which was enlightening. Uh, and I want to share some of that perspective as well. I, I, I've talked around with a couple of people that know this game real well and have been in situations like that. And I'd like to share exactly what happened last night uh, from those perspectives and talk a bit about that play specifically. 312-332-3776, that's the number. This is White Sox Weekly. I'm Connor McKnight. You're listening to the ESPN 1000 Hard Rock Casino White Sox Network. ESPN 1000. Welcome back. This is White Sox Weekly here on the ESPN 1000 Hard Rock Casino White Sox Network. I'm Connor McKnight. Spend your summer at the ballpark with Miller Lite Bleachers and Brews. Get one ticket and two beers starting at 27 bucks. You must be 21 and over with a valid ID to purchase tickets. Visit WhiteSox.com slash brew. Sox beat the Tigers last night 2 to nothing. It was a nail-biter. Sox had runners on all over the place, but had to wait until the seventh inning to get the hit that brought in the pair from Andrew Vaughn. He just kind of dropped one in right center field. It scored two. It was Yoan Moncada and Josh Harrison coming around to touch home plate and give the White Sox a 2-0 lead, a lead they would not uh, relinquish and would shut out the Tigers on the strength of Michael Kopech's six no-hit innings. Renato Lopez, Kendall Graven, and Liam Hendricks all recording scoreless innings as well. Uh, talked with Ethan Katz. When the show opened, he said things are looking good for Joe Kelly. He left the game the other night with lightheadedness. Did say that it might be one more day before Kelly is up in the bullpen and ready to go. But that's good news. Kelly been throwing pretty well. And Ronaldo Lopez, in terms of uh, anything, any health issues on the, on the pitching side of things, it's really just been Ronaldo Lopez, uh, who's off the injured list now and has made two relief appearances since coming off the IL, and things have looked great. So on the health side there, pitching-wise, uh, Sox are looking good. 
On the offensive side, things have not looked good for most of the season. It has been a struggle. Uh, they have struggled to walk. They have struggled to hit for power. And therefore, the runs have not come in the bunches that they had in 2021 when the White Sox won the American League Central by 13 games. They are three and a half behind the Cleveland Guardians right now. They're underway against the Blue Jays, by the way. Toronto has actually swooped in and taken the lead. Bottom seven, Jays up two to one. So that's some good news. Twins will play the Angels a little bit later tonight. That pitching matchup is, wait for it, I wrote it down. Here it is. Uh, nope, I wrote it down on a different page. I think it's, well, we'll get to it in a second. Hmm. This is real clean stuff, Connor. Way to go. Anyway, what, what's more germane for the White Sox right now is is how they provide offense to the pitching efforts that they're getting. And Luis Robert being out of the lineup for any amount of time, he left last night's game with a sprained left wrist, and his day-to-day is not good. I, you know that. I mean, if you're a White Sox fan, you understand what Luis Robert means to this team, both defensively in center field as a gold glover and offensively. The OPS for Robert this year, 790, is not where uh, he was last season at 946, but it is certainly much better uh, than most of his teammates. He has been one of the better hitters in this White Sox offense when he has been in the lineup. The OPS plus is 123 for Luis Robert. That is a normalized stat that would tell you that Robert is about 23% better than league average offense. And let me tell you, especially in a year like this, that's damn good. He's a 301 hitter with a 336 on base. He has slugged 454, 12 home runs, 56 run batted in, and 11 stolen bases. He was trying for 12 last night. It was a nothing, nothing game when Luis Robert hit an infield single to Javier Baez in the top of the seventh. He was the leadoff hitter. He was legging out an infield single on a ball deep in the hole. Baez got to it. And if anybody's going to make that play on, on Luis Robert, It is going to be Javier Baez. So after a night that saw Luis Robert not break out of the box, and Tony La Russa talked about it, a lot of people did, uh, Robert is breaking out of the box hard and running hard to first. To be a base runner, to try and be that guy to score a run uh, for the Sox. This was, pardon, I think I said it was in the seventh, it was in the sixth. The White Sox scored in the seventh, this is in the sixth, it's still a nothing-nothing game. Robert then tried to take second base in front of Jose Abreu uh, and Aloy Jimenez after him. Jonathan Scope laid his left leg out in front of the base. Robert went in hands first, which is what guys do these days to steal bases. It is real hard to slide and take second base, to steal second base with the feet out first. Is it a little bit safer? Yeah, I suppose it is. But when you're trying to take that bag... Listen, whether it's Javi or Baez making you know miracle slides into second base, and if you're you know tired of hearing about Javi, I get it. White Sox fans boot him a lot, but you can't deny the fact that the guy is a magician heading into second base or making tags out there either. Uh, but what you have to do in order to be safe like that, the way guys can tag these days, is is you have to be able to make that swim slide. You have to make that adjustment. Uh, and Robert trying to be an aggressive base stealer and a successful one at that went in hands first. He rolled up that left wrist, the wrist of the hand on which he wears the oven mitt to try and protect his fingers and and the rest of that hand. Not sure how much that particular apparatus protects the wrist from rolling, but I would imagine just a little bit, or it tries to. Uh, But this did not protect him from Jonathan's scope there. Darren Jackson and Len Casper talked about it a lot on last night's broadcast when it happened. Uh, And I talked about it on the postgame show as well. 
I don't see that as necessarily a dirty play from Scope, but I do think that it is on the cheaper side of plays. I'm not the only one who thinks that, and I'm far from the most important one that thinks anything about a play on the field. Guys who played think that. Guys who have been in that situation, both as second baseman and as runner. Now, it is not necessarily true that you can always keep your body from being in the way of a base dealer going into second base. The throw is not always where you want it to be. You're positioned in different places at second base, whether it's a shift or what have you, uh, to try and get over that bag. It's a very difficult thing to do. It's one of the harder things about second base is being on that bag and making tags like that. I do think, though, that later on in that game, when Adam Engel comes in hard on a force out and makes some contact with Jonathan Scope, that that's got to be an expected part of that game. It's not retaliation per se, but it's not not either, right? Robert is an incredibly important player to this team, and if that's the way it's going to be played, if that's the way this, you know, you're to position your body, if that's the way you protect second base, okay, but know that there is something else that those runners are going to be able to do to you on their way to second base next time around. Scope found that out. I also think, and there's been some comment about it, and I understand it. You know, there's a difference between running hard to first base and not. And when we're talking about a player who was quite literally in the other side, on the other side of that conversation, having, you know, not run hard to first on a play earlier in the week, I think it might have been two nights before, I understand that. This time he does, though. Like, this is the play where he is busting it out of the batter's box to beat it to first and running hard to second base to put himself in scoring position for the four and five hitters. That is the hustle. And he got hurt while hustling. Not because of, but while hustling. This team has also had a conversation around it, and Tony La Russa has talked about it as well, where a couple of guys have had to be told that, you know, if you hit one right to the shortstop, right to the second baseman, right at the third baseman, you might have to break it down and protect your legs for longer. That's a more difficult, nuanced conversation than this is right now, but it is part of the context. I just find it, you know kind of lacking in context and understanding when you're going to rip a guy for getting hurt when he's trying to get the extra 90 feet for his team that can't score right now, that is really having a tough time with runners in scoring position, and here he is trying to be that guy out there. I also think this, I don't, you know, and this is more about the play itself, and I guess we'll get to it after a quick break here, but I don't like the way that that play at second base uh still exists, I guess. And and I'll, I'll put it to you. I wonder if you'd like to see those rules changed or something different done at second with the tag play there on a steal in particular. 312-332-3776. That's a phone number question for you here on White Sox Weekly. I'll address the answer to it when we come back. we got the pregame show coming up in just about an hour. Lucas Giolito is the starter for the White Sox this afternoon. Matt Manning goes for the Tigers. White Sox trying to take this three-game series with a win tonight against Detroit. This is White Sox Weekly. I'm Connor McKnight in the ESPN 1000 Hard Rock Casino White Sox Network. Mornings on ESPN 1000. You're listening to White Sox Weekly here on the ESPN 1000 Hard Rock Casino White Sox Network. I'm Connor McKnight. Sarah Langs, the MLB Network, is our guest coming up at 5 o'clock. We'll talk with her. We already spoke with Ethan Katz, White Sox pitching coach. Really good conversation with him. Uh, about Michael Kopak last night, about Dylan Cease's quest to win the AL Cy Young. 
If you missed any of the interviews or any other White Sox Weekly shows, just go download the ESPN Chicago app, and all of our shows are downloadable for listening at your leisure. Uh, just hit the tab that says White Sox Weekly and download the shows and listen to it. There's all sorts of great podcasts on the ESPN Chicago app, all the good stuff. There's Crosstalk Unhinged, where guys say words that you can't say in other places. Uh, it's fun. It's good stuff. A lot of baseball talk on there as well. Uh, was talking at, about the play at second base last night, the Luis Roberts slide into second with John in the scope. And I, you know, in, in looking at that play, and I've been thinking about this for a little while, and, and I think I've talked about it on a few White Sox weeklies before and on, on other shows and whatnot, I wouldn't mind seeing a, a change in what we're looking for for slides into second base. And I... I think I'll set it up this way for you. You know, this game is on the precipice of a very large change to how it's played. By all reports, it sounds like the pitch clock and some kind of shift ban are coming into play next season. Um, It may or may not also be true that a limit to pickoff moves at first is coming into play. And at various levels in the minor leagues, these rules are already in play. Now, when it comes to the pickoff rules, in the minors, it is in play at one level, I believe it is double A, where the pitcher can only throw over twice to first base. If he decides to throw over throw a third time, you must get the runner out. If you do not, that runner is awarded second base. It works essentially like a balk. I don't love this rule, but it is existing and it is changing the way stolen bases are accrued in the minors. I mean, there's just a lot more stolen bases, right? And I think the pitch clock is going to change the amount of stolen bases we've seen. We've already heard Commissioner Ron Banford say that one of the things he'd like to increase, you know, a lot of this effort is to decrease game time and increase pace of play. The number of things we see happen on the field in any given game. Uh, Baseball wants to see fewer strikeouts. Uh, and fewer walks, you know, more balls in play, right? I, I get that. I got nothing against that idea. Okay, I'm in. But to change all of those things in one, potentially, in one offseason, this isn't a rule yet. We're not set on these things yet. We just are, are seeing what's coming and trying to react to them here uh, during the season. Um, it, it looks like it's going to be a lot of change. Could potentially be a lot of change. If that pickup rule, pickoff rule, you know, where you can only throw over twice and the third time, if you do, the guy gets the base, if you don't get him out. If that comes into play, that is going to, I mean, just completely change the number of stolen bases that we're going to see. The, the risk-reward calculus goes completely out the window, and, and you know, the nerdery has to totally rework uh, how often you go, what a success rate is, you know, how much you want to press it on the base paths, and good luck to them finding all that out. They're, I mean, brilliant guys working in most front offices right now, but guys and, and, guys and girls. Um, but my goodness, what, what a different math you've got to do for this game when it gets to that point. Now, I say all that to say this. If we've got more and more players going for second base, stealing bases, that means that that play, that contact that we saw last night from Luis Robert and Jonathan Scope, that will happen more often. It just will. I mean, it's just, if you've got more guys going that way, there's going to be more contact. We already had to change the rule in this game, and I think it was the right rule to change, the Buster Posey collision rule at home plate. That's so long ago that a lot of people, younger baseball fans, don't even know it was a Buster Posey rule. You say the Buster Posey rule, and they're like, I don't, I don't even know. What are you talking about? Buster who? Buster, you can't do that on the balcony, but I mean, it's like, a, is that an Arrested Development reference? I don't know. Yeah, because a young fan's going to know AD, but not Buster Posey. Anyway, 
that's just part of it. It's baked in. You can't block the plate. You've got to allow sliding room for that player to be able to score. More runs, less contact, less hurt catchers, less hurt players. I get it. But I also think it's second base. Like, are, are we really at a point where you want to see a guy sliding in, you know, with that swim move, rolling over, like, you know, making that reach for second base? That's a fun play to watch. Do you want him called out because he tags the base first, ball gets there after, and because a guy holds a tag on him like a, like a seven-year-old in freeze tag, just holding the tag there and waiting for a kid to fall over because he's a kid and going to lose his bounce? Is that fun? Like, is, is, that the, is that the balance we want to see in this game? I, I don't. I, I'm not into that. So I wouldn't be opposed at all to a bit of a rule change here. And I haven't worked out all the details necessarily. But if that slides into second base, I'm not in a live ball situation, right? Not with a ball put in play by the batter. Uh, but with a stolen base attempt, if you would want to go ahead and say, Runner gets there, tags the bag, makes no attempt to go to third. You can't if you advance, just like over at first base. If you advance, then you are a live runner and can then be tagged out or what have you. If that tag is made at second base, you touch the bag first and come off the bag, whether it be uh, because of contact, whether it be because of a head first slide where you pop off the bag just because when you hit the ground, you have to lift off the ground. That's just, you know, physics. I would be totally fine with that. I, I really would be. And it changes the game a little bit. Hopefully it makes it a little bit safer. Hopefully you see more stolen bases if that's something that you do want to see more of in this game. And I think a lot of people do. I would be 100% cool with that. It, the, there'd be a couple of plays. You know, a guy rolls around and maybe breaks a plane at second base. Is that roll toward third? Did he think he was going to be able to go? Did he know where the baseball was? Was it in the outfield? Is that why he was turning around? Or was it just part of the slide? Sure, I get it. But we're already reviewing a handful of plays over at first on contact, or not contact plays, but on, on bang-bang plays. You know, we had one the other night. Uh, the kid for Colorado, the kid, the 31-year-old rookie who made his debut for Colorado last night, got his first major league hit because he beat out an infield single that was overturned on replay review. That's cool. I, I would rather get those calls right and I think part of that, oh, okay, we're in replay review, whether at the ballpark or at home, I think we're all inured to that at this point. We're all cool with having to watch a replay every now and again to get the play right. I would have, I wonder if you feel the same way, but I would have no problem with that rule changing at second base in order to, I don't know, allow for more stolen bases to come into play and hopefully less injuries to occur. Hey, Kids Club members, take advantage of this special White Sox and Chicago Bulls Kids Club offer. All ticket buyers for the Sunday, August 14th game. That's tomorrow for the Sunday, August 14th game at 1.10 p.m. We'll be able to walk in a pregame parade around the warning track to purchase tickets. Visit whitesox.com slash kids club. That's whitesox.com slash kids club. Uh, getting closer to the pregame show at 5.30 here. It's a Lucas Giolito and Matt Manning start for the White Sox and Tigers. And I think, you know, it's kind of worth taking a look at where this division is right now. The White Sox are 9-8 and eight in 17 games against sub-500 teams. That's a stretch that began in this month of August. Uh, the Sox had that four-game stretch, pardon, started the month of August with a three-game series here at home against the Kansas City Royals. They won two or three. They then went on the road to face the Texas Rangers and split that four-game set two and two. They lost a four-game series 
to Kansas City in Kansas City. They split the doubleheader in day one and lost the next two. Came back home and won against the Tigers. So they are nine and eight, one game over five hundred against all teams under five hundred. And that's not where they wanted to be after that stretch of the season. They are back over five hundred at fifty seven and fifty six. Uh, but being sent back to the break even after losing three of four to the Royals was eh, not great, especially with how many base runners they had and how hard it was for them to bring those guys, stealing a Jason Manetti line, but I'll apologize to him later, to bring that man home, you know? Now, I, I think, too, this offense looks very, very different without Tim Anderson and without Luis Robert in it. Still... What we're looking at here are three teams with the Twins, White Sox, and Cleveland Guardians who are all, I I think, very much in the same boat. I'll explain that to you in a little bit, or in just a second, I guess. But um, I, I do think also that where the burden lies for the offense is obviously with the guys that are going to fill in for Robert with however much time he may or may not miss day to day with the sprained wrist coming out of last night's game. And Tim Anderson expected to miss six weeks, uh, maybe coming back around. You know, for what it's worth, that puts him back right around the 28th, 29th, 30th of September. Um, you know, maybe ready for the final 12 games. Nine of, uh, pardon, six of those, six of the final nine are against the Minnesota Twins, and three of the final 12 uh, are also against the Cleveland Guardians. Three of the final 15, sorry, are against the Cleveland Guardians. So you get a lot of divisional play late in this thing too. And I, I think what that may add up to is a very late division winner. I, I, I think it does. The, the Guardians had a couple of wins you know, lately. Uh, they got the Blue Jays last night. They are underway against Toronto right now. Blue Jays lead 2-1. to one. I think these three teams all have proven that they have the capability of looking like they want to look like. I think it's pretty clear that there are warts on all three of these division contenders as well. And what the White Sox had going for them, you know, uh, about 17 games ago in this stretch where they were playing a lot of teams under 500 was a really easy schedule. And unfortunately, they failed to capitalize on that going 8-8 eight and eight in the first 16. Aaron Gleeman, who does a fantastic job covering the Minnesota Twins for The Athletic, tweeted this out just uh, a little while ago. I think it was last night, and I caught it this afternoon on the retweet. But he tweeted out the respective strength of schedule remaining for the Twins, White Sox, and Guardians. So this is what I'm going to read to you here, a couple of numbers, but I'm not doing math, I promise. A couple of numbers. These are the strength of schedule remaining, the winning percentage remaining on the schedule for the Twins, Sox, and Guardians. The collected winning percentage for the Twins opponents the rest of the way, 489. The collective winning percentage for White Sox opponents the rest of the way, 484. The collective winning percentage for the Cleveland Guardians opponents the rest of the way, 483. There's not a lot of separation there. When you rank them, and Gleeman tweeted this out as well, when you rank them, respect, you know, for, for everybody else in the, in the league, the Twins have the 21st strength of schedule in terms of, you know, low 30th being the uh, easiest strength of schedule remaining. White Sox at 22, Guardians at 23. I mean, they're just, they're all right there. Three teams just stuck right there together the rest of the way. And, you know, I, I think going into this season, 
the White Sox talked a lot uh, about wanting, you know, whether it was Lucas or whether it was, you know, a lot of guys talked about this, wanting a, a, a tougher test, you know, an opportunity for this division to fight a little bit. You know, after the Tigers spent $75 million on both Javier Baez and Eduardo Rodriguez, and you saw the Twins uh, revamp their entire lineup with the Josh Donaldson trade. Not entire, but a lot of their lineup with the Josh Donaldson trade to the Yankees and the Guardians. Well, they do what they did. They kind of stayed pat offensively. San Jose Ramirez, which is a really good idea, and got deeper in, in terms of pitching, just like they always do. Um, now nah, it's a three-team fight. And it has become more difficult for the White Sox to come out of this three-team fight, now three and a half games back. But it is, I mean, from my perspective, truly, I, I still think this, it is still just as possible for them to do it as it was at the start of the season. And I think, you know, we get so uh, laser-focused on the one team we watch, the, most often, the, the, the White Sox, and get, you know, maybe we get a little too, uh, maybe a little too biased on the things they do well. You know, maybe we sit here and we watch Dylan Cease and we go, my God, how could anybody hit him? And then, yeah, you know, he's, I guess he could be gettable every now and again. Kind of difficult, but yeah, tough. And we don't see kind of the other side of things um, when we watch, you know, when we look at the Twins, when we look at the Guardians. We just look at them as teams, oh, they got to be better than the White Sox because it's been such a tough season for the Sox so far. I, I got to tell you, each one of those two teams, Twins and Guardians, uh, they've got some issues as well, and I, I would be real surprised. And who knows, maybe a meet and crow at the end of the season. Um, I would be real surprised if either one of those clubs makes a real pronounced run the rest of the way out. In- injuries notwithstanding, and that's what makes you know the, the injuries to Tim Anderson and Luis Robert at this point real difficult for the White Sox to swallow. They will need uh, guys like Yoan Moncada and Yasmani Grandal and Gavin Sheets uh, to continue to step up that production. A.J. Pollock has been pretty good out of the leadoff spot stepping in. He had a hit last night, a double and a walk, two, one for three night. Um, and, a, and a hard-hit ball besides that that might have fallen otherwise in the, uh, his uh, leadoff at bat against Daniel Norris. 312-332-3776. That's the number. I'm Connor McKnight. Sarah Langs is our guest at 5 o'clock. we got a lot more White Sox Weekly coming your way. Pre-game show at 5.30. Lucas Giolito, Matt Manning, the starters for the White Sox and Tigers. Stay tuned. we got you covered all evening long with White Sox. Two weekdays on ESPN 1000. Welcome back to White Sox Weekly here on the ESPN 1000 Hard Rock Casino White Sox Network. I'm Connor McKnight. White Sox and Tigers coming up this evening. It is a 6-10 start. It is a gorgeous day here at the ballpark. Lights are on. The flags are flapping. we got a little bit of wind. It's uh, 75, 78 degrees. It is just, oh boy, is it comfortable. Hopefully the White Sox have the same result as they did in Game 1 of this series, a 2 to nothing victory. If they want to make it easier, put up a 10 spot. That's fine by me. would be great to see the offense click against Matt Manning. He was really good last time out. Matt Manning was for the Tigers. He's only made uh, four starts this year. Boy, has he battled injuries this season. Last time out, though, and he's made two consecutive starts out of the rotation after making just two starts in April. He's been uh, on the shelf since then. Uh, First time back off the injured list, five innings, three runs, four walks, one strikeout. That was against the Twins in a win for the Tigers, two, five to three, the final there. Uh, Last time out, they were all over the Tampa Bay Rays, and he went seven scoreless 
struck out seven, walked three, gave up four hits. Manning, uh, the six-six right-hander, is twenty-four years old. Big part of this Tigers rebuild, and the, you know the Tigers have just moved on from their, their general manager Al Avila. Uh, he was the general manager of this club from the end of you know late two thousand fifteen. After Dave Dombrowski left and has overseen a lot of this rebuild, the Tigers were one of four teams to uh, outlay $75 million in cash uh, in a single season to two players this year. Uh, The Mets, the Phillies, the Tigers, and, oh boy, one other club uh, also put out that. So one of four teams to go be big spenders. And the hope was that that signing of those two players, Javier Baez and Eduardo Rodriguez, including some other places that they you know, added in, like Andrew Chafin in the bullpen and trading for Austin Meadows just before the season opened, they really thought this would be a year where they you know, maybe aren't um, knocking on the door of the top of the AL Central, but perhaps you know, sniffing around a, a wild-card berth, you know, a little bit of a, a season like the Orioles are having. Boy, have they been... A lot of fun to watch, uh, you know, just you put the baseball hat on, try and take the, the fan hat off and just kind of look at it from an objective perspective. Orioles been a lot of fun uh, making their charge to a wild card spot right now, even after having traded Trey Mancini and, and moving uh, Jorge Lopez to the Twins, their closer. Um, so that's been there, too. Uh, regardless, it's, it's not been the season that the Twins wanted to, uh, that the Tigers have wanted to have. Uh, Manning, though, coming back and making a push here for them, uh, would be pretty important, I think, in terms of going forward. Three one two three three two three seven seven six. That's the phone number. Head out to Homewood, and it is Jay here on White Sox Weekly. What's up, Jay? You're on the show. Hey, kind of great job. Um, I like how you laid it out in terms of uh, the hustle and so forth, and and looking at it uh, and understanding the complexity of it all. It's easy for you know the old schoolers to say, man, every guy should hustle. They're getting paid this exorbitant amount of money. They should run, run, run. And in theory, you're right. They should. However, what these guys are getting paid compared to 30, 40 years ago is significantly different. Oh, yeah. And, and you have to, you know, it's important to take that into account. In addition to that, the guys are way more muscular, which means it lends itself to more injuries. But I think it's wise. To be selective, I'm not saying guys shouldn't play hard. You know, sometimes when we talk, everybody wants to dichotomize everything. So you're saying this and that. No, things are way more complex, as we know, and the whole world is more complex. So things are a lot more complex than saying yes or no. I do understand sometimes, you know, it's, it's wise to be selective. And these are hard conversations, particularly for old school people. But, you know, we have to look at things in a way more, less simplistic way. I mean... You're talking millions of dollars these guys are getting paid. And to lose one, it's like, oh, my goodness. You know, it can take your organization back. Oh, yeah. So, you know, these are hard discussions, man, but I just think things are way more complex. And I think baseball, you know, has to adjust with times, man. And uh, it's a tough discussion. You see, as I'm explaining it to you, I'm ambivalent because, you know, I'm in my, I'm in my you know, late 40s, early 50s, I understand the complexity. I remember the Pete Rose, the Charlie Hustle, and all that. Yeah. But I do understand things have changed. So, kind of, it's a great discussion, man. I like how you laid it out because it is a complex discussion that's worthy to have. Oh, thanks, Jay. I appreciate you. Appreciate the phone call, man. I, I, I agree. Context is king. You know, like in, in any discussion uh, about, about anything, context is king. 
And I think, you know, we're, listen, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to toot our horn a little bit here, but I think we're real lucky to have Len and DJ talk about this game the way they do on, on the broadcast. And I think DJ pointed something out that was pretty interesting the other night. I, I forget exactly which game it was. Um, there, there is a, a benefit, I think, to, to breaking it down on particular plays. However, taking those first couple of steps out of the batter's box hard, then breaking it down after you see the guy has the baseball might be the smarter play than the other way around, taking a few steps out of the box and then hustling after you see the guy has booted it. You know, that I, it seems to make sense to me that way. And it seems as though, you know, saving yourself just a little bit from that particular issue, from those extra steps or that extra, you know, moving or whatever, over the course of 162 games matters quite a bit. I also think this, and I brought this up with a couple of guys uh, in, in the clubhouse, and, and they tended to agree with me. I, I think, and I talk a lot about the pitch clock, and I'm, I, you know, I, I, at some point I apologize about it, but I also think that if it does make its way into Major League Baseball, it's going to be the only thing we're talking about for about the first six months of the season because I, I think this pitch clock will uh, completely change the way we look at, analyze, and react to baseball. But what I, what I mean by it is we play longer games now than we ever have before, right? The average game time is up around three hours and 15 minutes and stuff, right? And, and when you look back 10 years ago, 20 years ago, 30 years ago, they, are, they were playing faster games. And that's not a knock on anyone's style necessarily. I mean, you can make your, you know, take your aspersions and, and throw your whatever uh, at one brand of baseball or the other. But the fact remains that if you're playing 155 two-and-a-half-hour baseball games, and 30 years later, the same guy with the same build and the same training physique and all this other stuff are playing 155 four-hour baseball games, the wear and tear on the guy playing four-hour baseball games is more. That is indisputable. And these guys now are playing longer games. And it's not a, oh, they should just, you know, whatever, they're getting paid so much money. There's a limit to what the human body can endure. I don't know if you play, you know, rec league softball the same way I used to. I don't get a chance to now anymore with the job and everything. I, it's fine. I get it. I'm, I'm happy to be out here at the ballpark, but I do miss playing 12 inch softball every now and again. But that first time you throw the cleats on and you walk out there as a 35 year old, you know, going, I got it. I'm fine. Don't worry about it. I'll just play first base today and everything will be okay. And then you get home after the game. Maybe you have a pop or two when you're done. Then the next morning you wake up with hamstrings that are literally screaming at you. And terrified with what you've done to them, <laughs> this is not a. This is not just a thing where you go, "I tough it out." It just isn't. The sport isn't shaped that way, uh, and I think it does. I think we do well to remember that every now and again. Uh, Sarah Langs, MLB Network, is going to join us. I'll tell you what we're going to talk about with her in just ten seconds. We'll pause it here for station identification. Live from the Old National Bank State Street Studio, this is WMVP WSAG HD2, Chicago, a good karma brand's radio station. You're listening to White Sox Weekly. I'm Connor McKnight. Sarah Lang's The MLB Network is next, and we are going to talk Cy Young. It's the Hard Rock Casino White Sox Network. Tell your smart speaker, play ESPN 1000. Welcome back to White Sox Weekly here on the ESPN 1000 Hard Rock Casino White Sox Network. I'm Connor McKnight. Sox and Tigers coming up. 6-10 start. 5-30 pregame show. And we are joined by one of our absolute favorite guests here on the show, Sarah Langs. The MLB Network does an awesome job breaking down baseball for you, whether it's on Twitter or on your television. Sarah, thanks so much for joining us. Appreciate it. As always, how have you been? 
I'm great. Thank you so much for having me. I really, really appreciate it. You got it. So the one thing, the, the one thing, the thing I wanted to start out talking about is the American League Cy Young Award race, obviously. You know, the White Sox have you know struggled a bit, a lot offensively over the last couple of months. But one thing that has been really easy is throwing Dylan Cease out there on the mound and for the most part expecting a win when he goes out there. White Sox fans know that Justin Verlander has been doing his thing and he's got the narrative behind him as well. But when you size up the AL Cy Young Award race... How does Dylan Cease compare to everything else? What stands out most about him to you uh, when you go ahead and, and try and handicap the last two months of this? Well, I certainly think he has a strong case. You know, you look at him, Shane McClanahan, and Justin Verlander, and those are really the guys you're looking at right now. But you ask what stands out, and for me, first and foremost, it is that slider of his. So we have a stat on a baseball savant from StatCast called run value. So the idea with run value is to assess every time the pitch was used, the count, the number of guys on base, all of that, and determine whether it was the right move. So it's not, uh, despite my saying to determine, this is a formula. And it gives you a run value for each pitch based on when it was used. His slider is by far the most valuable pitch in baseball so far this year. The run value where a negative number is good for a pitcher is minus 31. And the next best is Corbin Burns' cutter at minus 22. So that pitch has really been what has stood out to me. With him, and of course, he has the streak with one or zero earned runs, which is really cool. It's the longest such streak by any traditional starter since earned runs became official. But more than that streak, it's just how dominant he has been. I, I wonder then, so another way of saying with the run value on that slider, could you basically say he has kept 31 runs off the board for his team and, and added it that way? For sure. That's kind of how I also explain it is to say he has saved 31 wow. runs by using the pitch in certain scenarios, in certain instances. So again, when you think of the team, and yes, we know this team has struggled, but certainly when he's on the mound, we know they have a really good chance to win. And that pitch is a big reason why. When we have the AL Cy Young Award conversation, you know, whether it's this season or, or any season past, do you think that, that uh, the voters for Cy Young have gotten to a place where win-loss record is meaningless? Does it still equate to something, or is it more valuable than we, than we care to admit, those of us who are, uh, are trying to kill the win, because <laughs> I'm out there trying to do it. And maybe I shouldn't be, I'm maybe that's a me thing, but I don't know. No, I, I'm there with you, and I feel like that's why I'm here talking with you, too. I feel like that all goes hand-in-hand. Hand. But, you know, I can't speak for the voters, and, of course, it rotates year after year. Mm -hmm. But it's, you know, as you know, it's the Baseball Writers Association. There's two representatives, two voters per market, um, and it comes from the beat writers. So it comes from the people in the BBWAA who are really out there seeing these guys 
out on the mound in the case of the Cy Young Award. And I do think we're kind of past the wins and losses thing. I mean, for me, it was, what, 2009 when we had Tim Linscombe, and I believe that was the year with Zach Greinke. We also had a year where Felix Hernandez won, and all of them won in years where they didn't have a ton of wins. And then, of course, there was Jacob DeGrom in 18, all of that. But I feel like that has kind of put us past the caring about that. If anything, what I think tends to be maybe over-focused on now is ERA. You know, I mean, there's so many other ways to evaluate a pitcher. Obviously, ERA gives you, you know, the real-world results. Did they allow runs here or there? But ERA doesn't always tell you, for instance, that a guy has the most valuable pitch in baseball. He also has 196 ERA, which does help. But it feels like there have been some years lately where guys won purely because of ERA. So that may be the new stat that gets focused on a lot. Just to play devil's at, and we're talking with Sarah Langs of the MLB Network, and you follow her work on Twitter as well. She's fantastic. Just to play devil's advocate, Sarah, do you wonder about a point at which these, just the awards particularly, whether it's Cy Young or MVP or you know these kind of big ones, do we get to a point where we are so granular that we miss the forest for the trees? Do you worry about being at a point like that data-wise in baseball? You know, I mean, I think... There are certainly people out there who who think that's where the game is right now, and uh-huh. I would disagree with them wholeheartedly. But I think you will always have a wide enough range of people and perspectives, especially in that voting. I mean, as I said, there's, what, 30 votes, you know, coming in there. There's a lot of individuals who are putting their thoughts forward not just with who actually wins these, but even conversations like you and I are having here on August 13th. So I don't think we will ever get there. And I do think there's a distinction between the next level stats that certainly I'm a big fan of and that we know front offices are using day in, day out to evaluate players. And then sort of the broader things that the public and those looking kind of at a wider range of things we'll see at any given point when evaluating players. You know, I think that my saying, okay, here's run value is part of a Zion conversation, but it's not the only thing. And I think people know that. Yeah, I, I tend to agree with you there, too. I, I think the, you know, I'm, I'm kind of creating a straw man argument for the sake of conversation because that's the job this <laughs> afternoon, I suppose. But, like, I, you know, you, you look at the numbers, and, and for those listening who are like, oh, run value added, well, Dylan's just been really good. I don't know. You, you go to the website, you get a savant or whatever. Red is good, blue is bad, and that's that's a pretty great way to get started learning some of these advanced metrics that we're talking about with Sarah here on White Sox Weekly this afternoon. Um, I, I, Sarah, we talked, uh, boy, I, I think it was at the start of the season, maybe a month in or so, about this division, about the Sox and Twins and Guardians and where things were at. What has been the, to you, biggest surprise about these three contenders? And what do you look for as the uh, defining factors in the AL Central in the final two months? I mean, I think the biggest surprise is the simple fact that we have three contenders here. 
you know, I think we talked early on, that's when the team was dealing with an inordinate amount of injuries, especially early on in the season. And at that point, we were figuring, okay, the White Sox probably figure out at this point, and they probably end up still winning this division. I didn't foresee the Twins being nearly as good as they've been. And I certainly didn't see the Guardians coming as the youngest team in baseball with all of these different contributors. So, you know, I think the X factor down the stretch, I I mean, maybe it's almost too cliche to say pitching, but I look at the fact that the Twins really reloaded at the uh, the trade deadline, getting Lopez, getting Tyler Malley, and, uh, you know, they clearly addressed a need with their pitching. The Guardians have some younger players that they're relying on. When you look at a Tristan McKenzie, even Emmanuel Classe, you know, in the ninth is very good, uh, but certainly not super experienced there. And, you know, they do have Shane Bieber to rely on. And then you look at the White Sox and where where are we beyond Dylan Cease and which group of pitchers here is really going to support these teams. But it's fun to see that we have three teams really battling for this because entering the year, I mean, this was a division that most people figured was over. You know, and I'm sorry for White Sox fans that didn't go that way because I know they would have loved that. But it's always fun to see some uh, competition. I agree with you. Competition is fun. It leads to a little bit more anxiety around these parts than we were hoping for at the start of the season. But we can live with this. Pills for that. We're going to be okay, I think, one way or the other. I I wanted to ask you, Sarah, about a a league-wide trend that we'd been seeing for the the better part of a a decade, or at least half a decade, that seems to be shifting now. wonder if you're following this and and think we are kind of seeing the, the the pendulum swing back. The high-rising fastball, you know, that, that kind of high-velocity, high-RPM thing had been at the top of the zone and giving hitters fits for years, right? It had been the, the weapon that equalized Chris Bryant and, and the Cubs, as people in this town know really well. Um, are we seeing the league shift away from that as hitters begin to cover it more? Or is, is this a one-season, we'll see what the larger numbers show us uh, toward the end of things? You know, I I do agree with the last point. We'll see where we are when we have a full year and once we see next year and all of that. But more than anything, I almost come back to Dylan Cease and, you know, a guy like Shohei Otani. Each of their sliders are two of the three most valuable pitches Mm. in baseball this year. And I do think we've seen that these big power hitters who can hit that high fastball when given enough reps and really getting that chance, these sliders down in a way can really be difficult for these hitters. And I think so much of it is just about different looks. And ultimately, when there's been a theme or, you know, something that a lot of pitchers have been doing for a very long period of time, it makes sense. It's kind of just the story of not just baseball, but any history that this is how these trends go. So I wouldn't be surprised if internally teams are saying, hey, you know, you can throw hard, but let's work on this breaking pitch. Let's really use that as the bread and butter here. You know, I I think of like Edwin Diaz was a guy whose fastball was the thing for him. 
last year and previously and when he was good with the Mariners. And this year, his slider is absolutely his best pitch. So it's kind of just the cat and mouse game of these teams and pitching staffs and pitching coaches adapting to, okay, hitters can see that now, so what's next? Sarah, appreciate it as always. Great conversation. Uh, Enjoy the run to October here, and I'm sure we will check in again soon, and hopefully it is with the White Sox in the playoffs. Thank you so much. Thank you. Absolutely. Thank you so much for having me. Absolutely. Sarah Langs, you can find her on Twitter, Slangs on Sports. She's with the MLB Network and just a fantastic, fantastic baseball writer and local. She uh, she went to the University of Chicago is what she did, just uh, down the street here. So, uh, you know, you should follow her and, and like her stuff. It's what you should do. We're going to take a quick break. When we come back, we're going to talk about one of the biggest stories in baseball, the suspension of Fernando Tatis Jr. Uh, we have a Twitter poll out at ESPN White Sox that I want to ask you about, and you can chime in either on the Twitter poll, we'll get to it during the game, uh, or during the next segment, 312-332-3776. That's the number. It's White Sox Weekly on the ESPN 1000 Hard Rock Casino White Sox Network. White Sox Weekly, I'm Connor McKnight. You can bring your family to a White Sox game starting at 70 bucks with a family four-pack presented by Exxon Mobil. You get four tickets, four hot dogs, four drinks, and four chips to select games. For tickets, visit whitesocks.com slash four packs. Also, Sox fans, if you haven't checked out the White Sox podcast, Sox Degrees, you should. They have some great guests all season long, some close to the team, some six degrees away. New episodes drop every other Monday to listen, follow, and subscribe on Apple Podcast and Spotify. Ethan Katz was our guest earlier in the show. We talked with him, wanted to bring a little bit of it back, got to talking about Michael Kopech's outing last night, six no-hit innings. Here's part of the conversation with Ethan Katz. I mean, there's there's been a lot. I mean, what people don't know, what goes on behind the scenes, you know, but he, he went... He prepared himself a lot to get ready for that game. Um, and, you know, I think going into any game, you're very optimistic. His bullpen session before the game was, was okay. Um, he wasn't too happy about it, but just encouraging him to let him know that's just a place to get loose. And, you know, it was a, it was a great outing for him. So, you know, you never know going into each game. I've seen guys look really good and, and think that they're top of the game and they don't get through three innings. So, um, you never know, um, but once they get in the heat of the moment, it's and it's go time. You know, you never know what's going to happen. You guys got a win last night, so obviously it's a celebration all around. I think though it was really interesting to hear Tony Larusa talk last night after the game about how badly Michael wanted to come back out for that seventh inning. I think you know from an outsider's perspective, that's a really cool place to be because. Michael gets to celebrate an, uh, a success there, and you guys get to celebrate a success while also wanting just a little bit more next time around. Is that kind of how you see it? Is that something he may build on? Yeah, I mean, for sure. I mean, the biggest thing right now with him is is always, you know, how much what's his workload? How much should he do? And, you know, going into this game yesterday, we were very aware that the one before was, Three plus innings, seventy-four pitches. So you don't want to push him too much. You can't just go from three to nine, um, even though everybody wants that. That's not what's in best interest for Michael. Um, so it's it's just kind of monitoring day to day how he's doing, where he's at, and you know, going into it, we kind of had penciled in five and ninety, 
and you know giving him an extra inning but that's great he he wanted to do more i think everybody in the heat of the moment when they're throwing that well wants to keep going but we have to do what's right for the player talking with white Sox pitching coach ethan katz here on white Sox weekly i'm connor mcknight i noticed ethan in the second inning after michael had gotten harold castro and miguel cabrera swinging on strikeouts fastball and slider each of them he had jamer candelario on a one-two count and threw a low changeup that looked to me like he was trying to get some swing and miss on a change. And that's not something that's often in Michael's repertoire in that particular count. Can you talk to me about what the design of that pitch was like, what calling that one was like, how aggressive you want to be, and Michael wants to be with that changeup going forward? Where does that fit in to the rest of his stuff? Uh, it's something that he's always been working on. Um... You know, and that was the one thing, that was the one highlight going in um, into the game, leaving the bullpen yesterday, was how good the changeup was. Um, and it was something that, you know, we talked about with the Az, like, hey, let's see where it's at. Let's, you know, maybe lean on this pitch maybe a little bit more, um, depending on how, you know, he takes it out. And the first one he threw was good. So we kind of rode that wave a little bit. And it's something that he is going to continue to um, work on. We just don't want to put himself in bad counts. And, and also tried to develop that pitch at the same time. Last year in spring training, yes, Monty Grandal told everybody who would listen that Dylan Cease has the kind of stuff and demeanor uh, and ability that would let him compete for a Cy Young Award. And a lot of people you know, kind of said, oh, really? Is that really? Really? Uh, and, and Dylan has proven him right. He's proven everybody right. What has it been like uh, to watch that kind of prediction come into play here i mean he's he's chasing down the potential for winning that award as much as anybody else in the american league yeah i mean it's a it's a pleasure to watch every five days um he has he has the stuff he has the ability he has the mindset and he's really he has grown and i i've I've said this for a very long time you know i i still see a lot of room for improvement um and that's crazy because you're looking at a guy who's really thrown the ball well um, throughout the whole year and, and has put himself on the map with everybody. And, and I still see um, glimpses of him that we still want to grow and get better. So it, it's really exciting. He works extremely hard. And, you know, he's been, he's been our horse this year. Where, you know, I, I read a lot about Dylan's uh, quest to change the depth on that slider. And I'm wondering where and how he clued you in on what he was trying to do with that pitch grip change um, and exactly kind of what those steps were to to arriving at that. It sounded like it was just a, you know, one this one weird trick will help your slider kind of thing that he just shifted a little bit and there it was. But there, there has to be a little bit more to how he arrived there, no? Um, well, I mean, the slider has always been really good, but we were looking at it um, from an unknown lens in the way of, you know, he was throwing it a little bit harder, and then it was like, hey, Dylan, like, the movement is um, a little less, but you are throwing a little bit harder. And then we, like, kind of talked about it, broke it down, and went into the bullpen and kind of talked about it a little bit more. And then he started throwing it. He's like, okay, well, you know, I feel if I be able to go up a little bit harder, a little bit higher, I could throw a little bit harder. Um, and it was kind of, you know, but Dylan, your slider is already really good. Um and we kind of just toyed around with it, and it was like, you know, it, it looks really good. The numbers say that it's really good. Um, let's see how hitters react. And, you know, it's, it's, it's been working. So um, it was just kind of a little bit of an experiment just, just seeing um, 
you know, at the results of where his slider is at, kind of seeing a little bit uh, different movement patterns and kind of breaking it down further and him kind of playing around and boom, this is where we're at. Last time out, Lance Lynn went six innings, gave up two home runs, two two-run shots, and the rest of his outing was, from my perspective, pretty good. 